Hi, this is David Foster. My foundation works to provide financial assistance for all non-medical expenses to families of children going through the life-saving organ transplant process in Canada. I encourage each and every one of you to give the gift of life and register today. Also, listen to the Gifted Life podcast. Learn more and register today. One day, the life that is saved could be your own. Welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation. I'm your host, Shalon Carraway. Shalon Carraway? Yes, What happened sir. to Lori Steele? Well, Lori is out on location, and she is helping us tell more stories about yep. organ, tissue, and eye donation. And so you got stuck with me, Joey. Ah, uh, that's all right. You got stuck with me, <laughs> well, unfortunately. And I'm usually behind the scenes. You guys out there that listen to our podcast heard me a couple of episodes ago, and here I am. Well, in this episode, we're going to be completely Canadian-focused on transplant. And in our first segment, we're going to have one of the utmost experts in transplantation from Canada. Absolutely. And then we find out how one music producer, a very famous music producer, is making differences for families in Canada. And as we do in every episode, we're going to honor a hero. And we answer a listener's question about international donation. So we have an awesome episode right here, and we hope that you share, that you'll do something to help us spread the word about this podcast. And we're easy to find, of course, as always. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Pocket Casts, or whatever your favorite podcast apps may be. Absolutely. And if you're into social media, we're on social media at Donate Life Louisiana. You can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Donate Life LA. And also you can give us a call. Our number is 504-648-3477. That's 504-648-3477. Not sure I hit that one as good as Sally does, but I gave it a whirl. I think you were on fire. That was a great (laughs) job, Joey. We have a great show ahead, international flair, a lot of good guests. Here we go. Canada, our United States neighbor to the north, has an estimated population of over 35 million people. Manitoba is one of Canada's centrally located provinces. And today, we're talking to Dr. Siddiqui with Transplant Manitoba Gift of Life to learn more about how organ, tissue, and eye donation and transplantation is saving lives in Canada. Today's episode, Shalon, we have Dr. Faisal Siddiqui, who is a donor physician there in Manitoba. Welcome aboard, Dr. Siddiqui. Joey and Shalon, thanks very much for having me. Thank you for coming on. What exactly is the role of a donor physician? So in Canada, there's been a push from our kind of governing body saying that we should probably have physicians whose job is really not worrying about which recipient gets what organ, but rather making sure that people who want to give this amazing gift of life, we maximize the opportunities for them to actually donate as many organs as possible. 
people who are reaching that point where they can donate, whether it's through severe traumatic brain injury or um, an end-of-life discussion where they may be able to donate after cardiac death, those people are giving this amazing gift, and we want to make sure that if they want to donate, that we ensure that as many organs that they have that can donate are as healthy as possible for the recipient. So our focus is not on the recipients, but rather on those amazing gifts and maximizing the potential of those people who want to give that amazing gift. So the donor physician's role is really kind of arm's length from the recipient programs and the people who are on the wait list. Instead, we're talking to you and your family and your friends and saying, if you want to donate, we're going to make sure that we maximize the potential for your gift. So the role really entails ensuring that people who have expressed that wish to donate, we manage their physiology to make sure that their organs are healthy and able to be donatable. But also we ensure that there's a set of standards applied to ensure that the organs are treated appropriately and can be maximized in terms of their recovery at the end of your life. So it sounds like a lot of your role is more in the critical care setting and family support rather than from the transplant, typical transplant surgeon setting or even recovery surgeon setting, right? That is exactly right. All of us are critical care physicians and we do clinical critical care or intensive care medicine as our specialty. And through that, we have a lot of experience with end-of-life care. We also have a lot of experience with life support measures and measures to improve organ function. So because of that, we kind of have a lot of expertise and uh, experience with people who are having organ dysfunction issues. And so when we know someone wants to donate, we make sure that we do our best for all those organs and that donor. And so Dr. Siddiqui, can you give us some basic stats? How many people are waiting on a life-saving transplant in Canada and how many lives are saved on average each year? Sure. So in 2015 is the last year we have a lot of data for, and there's about 650 uh, deceased organ donors and 563 living donors in Canada. And that's with our population of about 30 million people. Uh, On average, there are over 4,500 Canadians waiting for transplant. Unfortunately, last year, about 200 patients died waiting for a transplant. Another 400 were actually withdrawn from the list for various reasons uh, that are too numerous to name. In about 2015, there was almost uh, 25, over 2,500 life-saving or life-enhancing transplants performed in Canada, but more than half of those were actually kidney transplants, and about 1,400 of them were kidney transplants. You mentioned the, the number of donors both on the deceased side and the living donor side. It's much closer than we see here in the United States. The vast majority of our donors come from LOPA and from the deceased side, whereas it's not quite as many on the living side. What would you say the big contrast, the biggest difference uh, that causes you guys to have basically the same amount on both sides? I'm not sure if I'd be the best person to answer that. I can tell you that when I talk to our living donors who have expressed a wish to donate, uh, many of them are in family or related donors who say, you know, my cousin, my brother, my uncle needs a kidney and I match and we kind of went through the family and this, you know, I'm the one who matches so I'm going to donate my kidney. We also have a surprisingly significant proportion of people who are just altruistic enough that they say, I'd like to just donate an organ. 
and these are people who want to donate uh, a kidney. And so I think the reason why we have a large population of living donors is a lot of families have been affected by end organ dysfunction and the problems with, uh, you know, weekly di- three times a week dialysis and, and all the complications with that end organ problem. And so they talk to their families and families look to try and get their family member better and healthier. So I, I think that that plays a big role in terms of uh, why we have so many living donors. Well, I'm interested to dive into a few areas that I really didn't. I'll be honest, I've been doing this for 15 years and kind of in my bubble for the most part within LOPA. And then, of course, I go to national conferences and such to learn a little bit more about our colleagues in the other states. But I'm interested to find out more about you guys' processes. Like, say, for instance, first-person authorization here. The Uniform Anatomical Gift Act is a statute. It's a law that states that you have the right to self-determination and that right supersedes anyone else's rights on what happens with you. You guys don't necessarily follow that, but from what I understand, pretty much the majority of the families agree. So can you tell me how you guys view first-person authorization there? So I know the Uniform Anatomic Gift Act was an act of Congress in the 1950s. Uh, Your summary is perfect. That's exactly what I've read, too. Canada doesn't have a similar permission for first-party consent for donation. Instead, nationally, we have a process of registration for intent to donate. And so that intention can be declared either through the little card that some people carry with their driver's license or they sign the back of the driver's license. That's a kind of a North American procedure that a lot of uh, jurisdictions have involved. Uh, we also have online registries where we collect intent to donate based on your name and your health card number or the provincial health card system. You know, when we have those discussions with families near the end of life, it's always a time of crisis. And sometimes they just don't know what the wishes are of their loved one. So sharing that predetermined wish with loved ones usually leads to, in about 95% of cases, oh. this idea of like, oh yeah, now we know what they want. We're just going to make sure that we honor their wishes. Mm-hmm. So that registered intent is how our process uh, runs with the understanding that consent can only happen from living people. And so we still need families' written consent prior to the actual procurement surgery. And so I had noticed that there is that push for conversations, and we do that here in the United States just because it is so important for families to have that discussion, for you to know your loved one's wishes and them to know yours. So another thing that we encounter in the U.S., and I'm interested to find out if you guys encounter is we have these myths that we're constantly going up against. And one of the biggest ones is that if I'm a registered organ donor and the physicians know that, they're not going to do everything to save my life. Do you guys encounter that myth in your communities? Yeah. So I I agree with you. I mean, like I was saying earlier, we're we're neighbors. Uh, We, you know, Canada and the United States, we're not that dissimilar in terms of our populations. And I think the same stories propagate (laughs) through the same populations. I can tell you that we, we do like having that discussion with your family and friends. And we encourage people to share their intent to donate in whatever way they like, you know, whether it's uh, going online with the provincial registries or, uh, 
talking to their family and friends over dinner or discussing it when their loved one is ill in the hospital, whatever it is that, that they want to do and how they want to share that information. Those stories of like people saying, oh, well, if the doc knows I'm going to be a donor, he's not going to try that hard. Every once in a while, I hear people and they come up and talk to me about that. And every time I tell them, I'm like, that's the reason why our donor doctors are separate from the treating right. team that's taking care of you. And so that nice kind of division of labor regarding the, you know, your doctor who would, who's taking care of you and responsible for your care has nothing to do with whether or not you become more qualified to be a donor or not. And it's also the same reason why we try and stay separate from the recipient programs, because I don't want anyone to say that the doc, you know, knows a guy who needs a kidney, so he's going to take mine. And so by keeping those institutions or those lines separate, it helps to just allay some of those fears. And people, I think, just, they need to have that say that out loud if that's their fear we got to talk to them and t- show them that like we thought about that and we definitely don't want anyone to feel that way Absolutely. and so that's one of the things that we do locally and when people bring up that discussion is we just dis- explain the system is set up so that we don't have that problem so here we have UNOS United Network of Organ Sharing and they kind of have multiple roles of course we're all members each organ recovery agency our OPO is a member of UNOS but they also house the list, you know, so the national list is housed with UNOS in what's called DonorNet. And of course, we've got quite a bit of national policies that help us to guide where the organs are allocated to the sickest patients, best match, you know, oftentimes it being close to us. So for instance, with the liver here in the United States, it's, it's allocated oftentimes by what's called a MELD score, but what it is, it's kind of a a score given to tell you how sick you are. So the sickest person within the state and then a region, and then it goes nationally. So how is it different with you guys? As far as I understand, you don't really have a a UNOS or one united body overseeing it. That's correct. So there are rules and regulations that have been applied across the country uh, through the governing body for all transplantation and transfusion is Canadian Blood Services. And they are an arm or a subdivision of Health Canada, which is a federal government agency that helps to outline what are the policies, procedures, protocols for all organ transplantation across Canada. And they set up kind of the rules that you have to follow. But we don't have the donor net-like list that you guys have in um, the United States. Instead, we have regional lists, and each province has its own kind of list uh, that's run through however many centers exist in that province. And provinces are like your states. Uh, you know, right. So Manitoba is a province that has about 1.3 million people in it, covers a massive geographical state, probably the size of Texas, actually. And so if a donor comes through and they uh, are a potential kidney donor as well as a liver, lungs, or heart donor, then the first thing that we'll do is our donor coordinators locally will do all the work up to ensure that we've identified the right HLA match and measure size, check for uh, organ function. If there's kidney recipients locally who are matches, they will be matched first. And then donor coordinators will help to communicate with the other provincial bodies. And literally, they just go next door to the next province. They, we have a liver lungs and heart, this blood type, this size, um, these are the parameters that we've tested. 
do you have anyone on your list who would match? If they have a recipient that could match, then they'll arrange to come for the procurement of organs. If they don't, then we ask the next province over, and, and we kind of go both uh, east and west at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we're coordinating two or three teams coming in from various parts of the country for procurement uh, with recipients waiting at those other institutions for those organs once they've kind of left our center. And so that's how the um, distribution happens. Um, I think it's an economy of scale issue with the tenfold increase in population in the United States. You have a tenfold increase in number of people, so it can't just be, I'm going to call the neighboring state now, right. how it's going. Mm -hmm. right. mm -hmm. uh, due to our size, we have this kind of more personalized service. There is a desire to get a little bit more of a national setting, and so we have for highly sensitized recipients that have developed antibodies to certain um, biomarkers, they will actually go on a list, and it's called our high sensitized patient list. Mm -hmm. And so if that list is run nationally, and if there is a kidney or a liver or an organ that is required by a highly sensitized patient, they actually jump to the top of the list. And in addition, like you were mentioning before, in terms of like MELD scores and assessments of severity, if there is a acutely ill patient who would benefit from a transplant, a lot of centers will just call the donor centers and say, we have a really high status patient who may need, let's say, a liver. Um, and whenever anything comes up, that'll be offered almost first to that program to make sure that that patient has the best chance of getting an organ. Well, that is quite fascinating. I've been fortunate enough to go to quite a few national conferences and be able to share our processes with other organ recovery agencies and them share theirs with us. But it's so amazing the differences with you guys, especially like you said, with the geographical differences uh, with the sheer number uh, population differences that you guys can be more personal with your approach. And I certainly thank you, Doc, for coming on and My sharing pleasure. with us. Joey, actually, I'm learning a lot from you guys. I really appreciate talking to you. Well, thank you, Dr. Siddiqui. And people in Canada, we hope they listen to the Gifted Life podcast. Where can they go to register to learn more about your process and what it means to be registered and where can they gain that information so there's a lot of online resources available for people in the general population or people with an interest to gain information about not just our program but also kind of the national programs in canada transplant manitoba has a gift of life uh, website it's transplantmanitoba.ca the t-r-a-n-s-p-l-a-n-t and then Manitoba, M-A-N-I-T-O-B-A dot C-A. That opens the door to our local site, and we have links to the other provincial bodies, including all the major provincial bodies that do organ donation. And so our website contains a lot of information about what we do locally in terms of donors and recipients, how we honor the people who have given this amazing gift of life, as well as how people can learn about the benefits of organ donation so that they can have that conversation with their family and friends. Well, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Siddiqui. We are so excited that you were able to join us and tell us more about Transplant Manitoba and how organ tissue and eye donation works in Canada. If you are a listener and you have some more questions, info at lopa.org.
So for 30 years, the David Foster Foundation has worked to provide financial support for non-medical expenses to Canadian families with children in need of life-saving organ transplants. The David Foster Foundation has assisted over a 1,000 families with children in need of a transplant and provided much-needed dollars in direct family support. So today we have with us Mike Ravenhill, CEO of the David Foster Foundation. Mike, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So can you tell us about the David Foster Foundation? Well, the David Foster Foundation started in 1986, uh, 30 years ago, basically. And it was because David Foster received a call from his mother. David was in LA, UCLA Medical Center. There was a child that was uh, needing a uh, major organ transplant from Canada. And so David's mother actually phoned him and said, would you just go see this little girl? And uh, not as a celebrity, but just as a hometown boy, because uh, David was from the same hometown as this little girl. So every man or uh, child listens to his mother. And so you do what you're told, and David actually went to the hospital. But little did he know that would change his life forever. David went to the hospital, spoke to the family, and spoke to the little child, and realized the stresses that they were under. And then David was about to leave, and he asked the little girl, is there anything that I can do for you? And the little girl just stopped. And David thought that she would say, oh, I want to see this celebrity, or I want to go to Disneyland, or whatever. But that wasn't the case. The little girl just looked David straight in the eyes, and she said, yeah, I just want to see my sister. And David was puzzled and asked a few more questions. And then he realized that the family did not have enough money to fly their sister down, and she hadn't seen her sister in over three months. So David said, I'm going to make that happen. And uh, so he came back to Canada and uh, arranged uh, flights and brought the family down to uh, California, picked them up and brought them to the hospital. And he said, when those two little girls' eyes met, it etched in his heart forever. And he said, this is going to be my foundation, and this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to provide financial assistance to families of children that require major organ transplants for all non-medical expenses. No child, no family should ever be split up when they're going through a terrible situation like this. And so that's what he did. And over a thousand families later, millions of dollars raised and thousands of lives that have been affected by one man's choice to make a difference. Mike, to be honest, me being a small town, southern Louisiana boy who do- <laughs> uh, doesn't, I don't have a whole lot of outside knowledge outside of what I see in front of me. So can you tell me a little bit about David, the superstar? Mm. Well, he truly is. I'm in my 50s, and so people of my age would say he's the soundtrack of our lives. Celine Dion, Josh Groban, Michael Bublé, produced Andre oh. Bocelli, you know, it goes on, Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, Bodyguard, oh. Madonna, you know, Rod Stewart, Stevie Wonder, oh. Earth, Wind and Fire, I could go on and on, Natalie Cole and Unforgettable, you know, Shaka Khan, Kenny Rogers, Dolly Parton, you know, Chicago, and so forth. He is a man that has a gift like I've never seen before, and, and he is respected in the industry as one of the greatest producers of all time, music producers. He knows how to find the talent, but he also knows how um, to bring the best out of an artist. And his saying is, good is the enemy of great, and so he will find greatness, and he really does, and he's a, he's a magician when it comes to that. So, you know, you, you probably would go through a day without hearing a song that he has produced, written, or co-written, or co-produced. That's who he is. He's an amazing man, and he's wonderful at heart. He's uh, been with him for over 20 years, and uh, you know, I always like to say, I just love to just ride the jet stream and hold on tight. So I know amazing oftentimes is thrown around, but this guy is is almost beyond that. I don't think you named an artist that I didn't love. <laughs> 
Right. You know, and, right. and yeah. when you talk in the bodyguard, I mean, that's m- one of my favorite soundtracks of all time. So uh, giving that away. Yeah. Well, you know, he's a 16 time Grammy Award winner. Wow. And, you know, he's had 50 nominations. So he's he's, he's been up to bat a few times, but, uh, you know, 16, that's not that bad. So, so with all that, with all that he has on his plate and has had on his plate, he found time to start a foundation just based on one girl's wish. And look how much this has taken off, right, Mike? Mm, it's amazing, yeah. It started as a small provincial um, up in Canada. Um, we have provinces versus states, and, and it was a, uh, British Columbia was the province that we started. And uh, the foundation, in over 30 years, it's grown to be a national foundation, um, helping families from coast to coast to coast, and uh, really uh, making an impact on, on families' lives that otherwise would be shattered. Up here in Canada, the, the percentages are incredible. 80% of families will end in bankruptcy or divorce if we don't step in and help wow. the families. And um, that in itself is a shocking statistic. And, you know, when somebody can make a difference and change that, um, you know, that's what David did. And, and um, you know, at the end of the day, David says, I don't want my music to be my, my legacy. I want my foundation to be my legacy. And it truly is. He's, he's put his heart and soul in this for 30 years. And continues to do that. Where do you see David Foster Foundation heading? Mm, that's a great question. You know, we, we constantly are asking that question. Our board, we sit down and we discuss, you know, what can we do? How can we make a difference? And really, it comes down to where can we make the biggest impact and the biggest difference? How can we save more lives? How can we educate more people? And how can we make sure that what we are doing is truly making a difference? Right now, we have a goal at uh, 30 by 30, meaning $30 million by our 30th anniversary. And we're pretty much on target for that. That'll be this year. And then we look to increasing the organ donor awareness and education, bringing it into the schools and bringing it into corporate challenges. You know, we have a program up in, in Canada that's called uh, Be a Donor, Save a Life and Operation Registration, where we challenge corporations to educate their staff and then you know, share the information with their family. And it's, it really comes from the grassroots, and I think that's where we're going to move um, our direction more into getting into the grassroots and really getting into the communities and speaking and talking and sharing the stories and how people can make a difference. Because, you know, we all can leave a life legacy. At the end stage of life, when the time comes that you can leave that life legacy, if you haven't let your family know of your wishes, the family actually can veto your wish, and therefore your, your organs are not given to save a life or improve the life. And that's, you know, that's really a sad thing. So we always say, please educate your family, let them know about your wishes, and make sure that you tell your family. Right, Mike. And, and that's something that uh, Dr. Siddiqui and I had spoken about earlier. It is one of the differences here in the United States where first-person authorization supersedes the family's wishes. But it's still, at the same time, we feel it's still just as valuable and important to make sure you have that conversation with your family. If someone was to want to apply for the foundation or to the foundation, how would they go about doing that? Yeah, another great question. You know, all of our applications come through the hospital and through the transplant team. So a family can't direct, uh, directly call our foundation and ask for financial assistance. It actually must come through the transplant teams because they're the professionals. Right. They know the family situation, and when the child comes through that process uh, and gets worked up for an organ transplant, um, there's a whole transplant team that comes around them and social workers, and they assess their needs. From there, 
um, they call us and the transplant social workers call us, say we have a need, we have a family, here's the, what we're looking for, here's how much money and so forth, and then we go um, and help that need. One of the things that we pride ourselves with is we have very little red tape. We can turn around financial assistance within hours for a family. So, Mike, in October, there's a section on your homepage of your website that says that there's a 30-year gala plan. The celebration looks amazing, and it, it really highlights the lives that the foundation has touched over the years. How can people help support your efforts? Wow. You know, there's a couple ways they can support it. One, they can come and enjoy an absolutely world-class show, and it's you've ever seen David Foster in concerts and David Foster and Friends or the Hitman shows, um, you'll know what I'm talking about. We've had in the past Stevie Wonder, uh, Celine Dion, Michael Buble, Andre Bocelli, everybody I talked about before, we've had most of them at our shows. And they're multiple artists that we bring in in a night, not just one. So that's one way they could do it. They could come um, to uh, to the show. The other one, they can make a donation to our foundation. Um, we are a 501c3, and we're a registered charity of both Canada and in the United States. Um, we have probably about 20 to 25% of our attendees at our events come from the United States, and they come from all over the world um, to our event. So there's a couple ways that you can do it. You can go online uh, to uh, davidfosterfoundation.com. There's links there, and uh, you can phone our offices, and all that information is online. Mike, we can't thank you enough. The website, davidfosterfoundation.com. And Joey, what I'm great, speechless yeah, with uh, what this foundation is doing. We, we talk about all the time the power of one, yes. you know, and and how one person can make an impact on so many and leave a legacy. And not only David, but you too, and everyone there. The impact that you guys are making, not only on patients themselves, but their entire families and friends. That is just amazing, and I applaud you. Thank you for all that you do. Well, thank you so much, Joey and Sean. I uh, appreciate what you guys do as well. It's our pleasure to uh, to speak with you today, and, and we just uh, applaud you guys for, for waving the flag and Donate Life Louisiana and just everybody involved with creating the awareness of the need to become a registered organ donor. Thanks so much for the time today. All right. Thank you. Take care. Thank you, Mike. As we do in every podcast, we're going to take a moment to honor a donor. And because we've been talking about organ, tissue, and eye donation in Canada, Transplant Manitoba has provided us this story. This hero that we'll be honoring is Kelsey. And this story is provided by her mom. We had no idea how much our lives would change in 2015. Losing our girl has been devastating. Every day we miss her smile, her love of music, fashion, and fishing, her sense of humor, and her sneaky hugs. When we knew her struggle was over and there was no hope for her recovery, we as a family met with a caring team from Transplant Manitoba. We felt fortunate in knowing that Kelsey would have wanted this. We had spoken about organ donation when big sister Jenna received her driver's license and had a conversation about her signing her own donor card. One of Kelsey's favorite books was Searching for David's Heart. It was about organ donation. We are glad that we had those talks and had that knowledge and feel she had a part in this decision. By donating her organs, we extended her giving nature. Today, there are seven people who by all accounts are doing well because of her gifts. For us, Kelsey's family and friends, knowing what she was able to do for them 
has been tremendous. When we're missing her and feeling low, we try to turn our thoughts to those she helped and it gives us comfort and hope for them and their families. Jenna, Kelsey's sister, put it best. She said we can take comfort in knowing when someone meets the love of their life for the first time, it's her heart that will flutter. Her eyes will see another sunrise, another spring, and the face of a loved one. She's our superhero. We sincerely hope those recipients continue to regain their health and to live their lives to the fullest. Donating to someone in need, even at your lowest point, will always benefit you in the end. It certainly has for us. And now we pause to thank Kelsey for the gift of life. And so, Joey, you know, we always say share, get in touch with us. We have our email, we have our phone number, we have social media, and we get this question. We've gotten this question a lot in social media here lately. If you have an organ in the U.S., can it cross international borders to save someone's life? That answer in simple forms is yes. It doesn't happen often, but there are times, especially with our neighbors to the north, especially if there's an infant or someone obviously with a small waiting list where there's, there's not a lot of patients to match with. Oftentimes, there are good organs, but because of the size or maybe some type of matching thing, that they don't necessarily have the right recipient for that good organ. And in those cases, it has happened from time to time where either direction, where we've reached out from the United States and vice versa. So it does happen. It's rare. Uh, but of course, we've got to go through our own list first. We can't just Absolutely. jump lists or anything like that. But instead of burying an organ that could save, especially a kid, certainly uh, we'll go through every avenue that we can before we call it quits. And so there you have it. Another question answered. Joey, that was great information. It was something when I saw the question come through, it never crossed my mind until I saw it. And it was like, yeah, I need to find out that answer. So if you have a question, you can get in touch with us. It's very easy. You can give us a call, 504-648-3477, or email us, info at lopa.org. We may even play or answer your question right here on the podcast. Wow, another great episode here. It sure was. Having the understanding that I have of, you know, how our processes are, it was so interesting to me to learn a little bit more about our neighbors to the north. I want to start by thanking you, Shalon, for taking Laurie's place, taking that Thank difficult you. seat Thank right there. It is a difficult seat. You and, did a great um, job. I, I somehow managed to get through it. And we want to thank Dr. Fazal Siddiqui for just enlightening us with so much great information. There's so many differences there. Uh, so many different challenges that we just don't see here. I certainly want to want to thank him. I'd like to thank Mr. Mike Ravenhill. He is the CEO at David Foster Foundation. The work they are doing to help those families in need mm -hmm. is just astounding. And 30 years doing it. Yeah. Unbelievable. We often say one person. Lori always says one person. And really, it just takes one person making a difference to help make life happen. I'll take Laurie's line here. Do something you wouldn't normally do to make life happen. Have a good one.
This is a production of the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency, or LOPA. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreau, and Sally Gentry. Our producers are Kirsten Hines and Shalon Carraway. We are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Metairie, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez. Music